Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, Thursday, August 17th, 2023. Mr. Bill is back at his uh, Northward uh, station. David Dahl, my producer, is in his West office, as is his want. And for anyone else from any of the cardinal points on the compass, you can give us a call at 602-508-0960. That's 602-5080-960. An interesting early afternoon was had by me as a spectator. A dear friend who himself has spent some time in prison saw his son graduate from the police academy today, and I was privileged to be invited to go and be in in attendance. I can't imagine, cannot imagine the range of emotions and pride of my friend whose son, now a member of the Phoenix Police, lives with his dad who, years ago, put his life back together and thanks law enforcement for actually saving his life. You know the old line, I never saw the light until I saw the law? It was an emotional afternoon, as I say. The police have been taking it on the chin for a long time, too long. Some cities of late have seen over 525% increases in crime, including in the categories of narcotics, violent crime, rape, robbery, assault, and increased gang activity. Take Seattle. A few years ago, a retired policeman from there wrote this, quote, There are some on the left who question whether America is turning into a police state. I would challenge instead, is America degenerating into an anti-police state? He wrote this after Ferguson, Missouri, a story still filled with lies. In fact, House Democrats still relay footage when it suits them, showing protests across America with protesters chanting, hands up, don't shoot, a reference to what the deceased in Ferguson is reported to have said. Is reported. He never said it. It's a myth that won't die. It didn't happen. And fact check after fact check, including an Eric Holder Department of Justice investigation, concluded this. In fact, from the report, Eric Holder's Justice Department investigation wrote this, quote, All of these purported witnesses, upon being interviewed by law enforcement, acknowledged that they did not actually witness the shooting, but rather repeated what others told them in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. Witness accounts suggesting that Michael Brown, Michael Brown was standing still with his hands raised in an unambiguous signal of surrender when police shot Brown are inconsistent with the physical evidence, are otherwise not credible because of internal inconsistencies, or are not credible because of inconsistencies with other credible evidence, close quote. This, of course, did not and does not stop speech after theatrical speech, by Democrats, each time it's important for them to posture on these issues with the ersatz invented mantra exploiting a horrible drama or trauma. Back to the retired Seattle police cop I was quoting, if I may, quote, if an officer gains nothing by taking an oath because the society he is swearing to protect and serve no longer values such a pledge, then perhaps the law enforcement oath's time has passed. If an officer who has chosen a profession in which he or she will risk his or her physical and mental health and perhaps even life cannot get the benefit of the community's doubt, then who else in society deserves this benefit? It seems more and more the criminal does. The vast majority of police officers take the job so they can help people to live in safe communities where they can pursue their happiness in whatever peaceful ways they choose. 
It is one of the highest and noblest of all professions, and one without which peaceful society cannot exist. The racial agitators would have everyone believe that we live in a police state where black teens are being gunned down in the streets. However, the statistics show that out of 12 million arrests per year, which is over 30,000 per day, 99.9% occur without a suspect being killed, and that one-tenth of one percent, the vast majority of that one-tenth of one percent, the vast majority are justified police shootings. Hardly the bloodbath myth some would like to portray. I don't know of another profession other than law enforcement where more people feel compelled to tell the trained professionals how to do their jobs. Are we witnessing a time when the most qualified people to do this job will no longer be willing to pin on the badge? Are we witnessing the inception of America, an anti-police state? From Seattle to Chicago to Atlanta to New York City to Philadelphia, more and more cops are quitting. Will it make there and our community safer? Do communities care about safety? I can't ever forget one Travis Yates of the Tulsa Police Force who wrote this. I quote at length, quote, This is the hardest thing I've ever written. I grew up in a law enforcement family. My father worked his way up to the rank to captain at the Fort Smith, Arkansas Police Department. As a kid, I remember going with him on Friday to pick up his check, and I was in awe of these superheroes he worked around. They were funny and fun to be around, men and women of all races, all with the same mission to make the community safer. My dad sacrificed a lot, and so did my late mother. Whether it was the week-long surveillance or wiretap or chasing drug runners across the country, he gave it all for my family and worked plenty of extra details to never let our family be without. Some would call that privilege, but where I grew up, it was just called hard work. The kids at school thought it was cool what my dad did, and while he sometimes asked me if anyone gave me a hard time, they never did. There was a respect among all, even the kids in shop class. I became a cop at 21 and never looked back. 27 years passed, and if you would have told me the condition of law enforcement today, I would have never believed you. It's not law enforcement that has changed for the worse since then, but everything around it has. The mentally ill used to get treatment, and now they just send cops. Kids used to be taught respect, and now it's cool to be disrespectful. Supervisors used to back you when you were right, but now they accuse you of being wrong in order to appease crazy people. Parents used to get mad at their kids for getting arrested, and now they get mad at us. The media used to highlight the positive contribution our profession gave to society, and now they either ignore it or twist the truth for controversy to line their own pockets. There used to be a common respect among criminals. If they got caught, they understood you had a job to do, but now it's our fault they sit in handcuffs rather than their own personal decisions. If someone attacked a cop, they were seen as such. Now we martyr them and sue for millions. We used to be able to testify in court, and we were believed. Now, unless there is video from three different angles, no one cares what you have to say. With all this talk about racism and racist cops, I've never seen people treated differently because of their race. And while I know that cowards that have never done this job will call me racist for saying that, all I've ever seen was criminal behavior and cops trying to stop it, and they didn't give a rip what their skin color was. I've seen cops help and save any type of race, gender, or ethnicity you can think of. While that used to mean something, no one cares anymore. I've been called every name you can think of, and many of them with racial overtones, and it's never come from cops. I've watched African-American cops take the brunt of this and even talked one rookie out of quitting after he was berated by a lot of cowards that had the same skin color as he did. I've heard words I never heard before being a cop. 
Despite that, it's been the greatest opportunity of my life to do this job. I would have recommended it to anyone, and I secretly hoped one of my kids would do it one day. They would have been fourth-generation cops. But today, all of that is over. I wouldn't wish this job on my worst enemy. I would never send anyone I cared about into the hell that this profession has become. It's the only job you can do everything right and lose everything. It's the only job where the same citizens you risk your life for hate you for it. It's the only sentiment left in society where it's the only segment left in society where it's cool to discriminate and judge just because of the uniform you wear. Close quote. Police are here to help build and preserve the task of every polis, of every political community, which is first and foremost to ensure that the forces of composition far outweigh the forces of decomposition. If you see anything like the way I see things these days, you have to worry and worry tremendously about that balance having been tipped in the wrong direction. Some couple of decades ago, William Bennett wrote, over the past three decades, we have experienced substantial social regression. Today, those forces of social decomposition are challenging and in some instances overtaking the forces of social composition. And when decomposition takes hold, it exacts an enormous human cost. Unless these exploding social pathologies are reversed, they will lead to the decline and perhaps even to the fall of the American Republic. Close quote. Many years ago, G.K. Chesterton put it this way, quote, The romance of police activity keeps in some sense before the mind the fact that civilization itself is the most sensational of departures and the most romantic of rebellions. By dealing with the unsleeping sentinels who guard the outposts of society, it tends to remind us that we live in an armed camp, making war with a chaotic world, and that the criminals, the children of chaos, are nothing but traitors within our gates. The burglars and footpads are happy in the immemorial respectability of apes and wolves. The romance of the police force is thus the whole romance of man. It is based on the fact that morality is the most dark and daring of conspiracies. It reminds us that the whole noiseless and unnoticeable police management by which we are ruled and protected is only a successful night errantry. Close quote. Bless and thank you, new officers here in Phoenix. You are our forces of composition, keeping society protected, unsleeping sentinels who guard the outposts of society. Let us all wish them the best as we hope for the best of all of us. They are the ones who will make it so or leave us so. Civilization, after all, as Professor Ed Delatra once wrote, depends on people who are committed to civility and decency. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Who do I have on? Daniel calling in from Prescott. Is that right? Daniel, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, Thanks, Seth. Uh, Appreciate you uh, taking my call. I was calling because there always seems to be a lot of conjecture around what's going to happen if Trump wins. Right? Yeah. What's going to happen if he wins? Yeah. What about if he doesn't win? Yeah. What is what is a conservative going to do yeah. if he doesn't win and the same sort of shenanigans that occurred in the last election are found to have occurred in this one? 
Uh, now, are you talking primary or general? General. So, to frame the question, what if Donald Trump doesn't win, what will conservatives do? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I don't I know. <laughs> I don't know. It depends on... It depends on a lot of factors. Uh, so I was just looking at some polling on the general election matchup, if it is between Biden and Trump. And, of course, I mean, there's a lot of variables. We don't know that it will be Trump. We don't know that it will be Biden. Do you, by the way, what do you think, Dan, do you think it'll be Biden as the Democratic nominee? I'm curious to know. I, I do. Okay. I absolutely do. All right. Well, I mean, it's it's even betting uh, that, that it will be the case. So right now the polling... Uh, shows basically a slight lead for Joe Biden, pretty close within a margin of error. Uh, Biden up three. Uh, you have some polls uh, where Biden is up one. You have some polls where he's uh, up seven. And you have a couple polls uh, where you have Trump up one or two. So the notion, first of all, that I want to dispense with right up front is that uh, Trump can't beat Biden. The numbers at that close range mean that it's, you know, it's pretty close to a toss-up. Now, of course, these are national polls, and you have to look at really the battleground states that matter, um, states like Arizona for certain, uh, states like Wisconsin, states like Michigan. Um, I suspect in a weird way Texas will be a bit more in play than usual as well just because of the demographic changes and political changes going on there. But if it's, you know, a fair election without shenanigans, then I hope that we take the lessons as to why we lost. Um, I don't know if we are ever very good at that. Um, I don't know if we do good postmortems in our party. I don't think Republicans do a great job of understanding what it was that caused them to lose. Um, if there are a lot of shenanigans, then I hope it will get state legislatures to get off their butts and do their jobs and engage in serious and meaningful election reform uh, rather than uh, split uh, split petty partisan differences within the caucus, which is what has, by the way, prevented a lot of good serious election reform, both in Arizona and in other states. Um, these, uh, you know, purity tests that keep good reform from happening. We had options for a lot of good reform here. And it got scuttled within our own caucus when we had a majority, when we have a majority. So, I, I mean, I just hope that in, in, in the event that a Republican doesn't win, one of those two things will take place depending on the conditions of why we didn't win. Now, weren't we kind of in this for these parameters before? And what, what came out of it? Nothing. Like, we, we, we sit on our hands and we just accept the fact that we can't win. And then we go back and we try it again, and then we run up against the wall again, and we go, well, shucks, let's try it again. Like, what? something needs to change fundamentally in the mindset of the people of America. And if it doesn't happen soon, things aren't good. What, kind, getting, what kinds of things are you talking about exactly? I, I struggle with the idea that nobody on radio is willing to start talking about real revolution. I don't know why they're not willing to do that. Because it's asinine. I, I don't think that's true. Okay, why not? That's, how we, that's what we got. Who leads we the revolution? The, the right needs to lead Who's the, the leader? A revolution has to have a leader. Who's the leader of it? You need to get people together. You need to start banding together in little groups. Those groups need to designate 
strong individual who can lead those groups band together. Do you have a concept of who that would be? I mean, this is a very radical suggestion. You should have a concept of who's going to lead it. Who is it? Donald Trump is the leader of that. Donald Trump will lead a revolution. I think that that's what needs to happen, Seth. I really do. And is it a and 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 what form does it take? I think the form of the revolution needs to be that we're not going to take this anymore, and people who are in power that we have evidence that have cheated to get there need to be removed. You know, not everyone agrees with you on that, right? I a hundred percent, I understand that. Okay, but it's time to have that conversation. Well, we've been having the conversation since January of since December of since November of 2020. Completely agree with you, but we've been having the conversation about let's the right always has to be civil and mind their manners, and the left is allowed to do things like drag a very popular political candidate through the mud with legal means that everybody knows are sham and sham indictments, sham uh, accusations. We know this. We have evidence to it. But we're just going to sit on our hands and let it happen again. I don't know if I agree with you that we're sitting on our hands and letting it happen again. I mean, we took back the House of Representatives when we had elections uh, last year. And the House of Representatives is doing something about it. We have a majority in the House of Representatives. We have a majority in our court now as well. I mean, it's not as if this country and this government is exclusively in the hands of the left. Understood, but we're not seeming to get very far. Well, when you, you look not- when you look at what they're doing to Donald Trump in the courts, you know, one of them is Jack Smith. The other two worst of those examples happen to be local district attorneys, right? Okay. Who were voted into office by their communities, right? So take away the charges from Georgia and take away the charges out of New York, and you're left with what Jack Smith is doing, which is the thinnest of legal, which is the least sound of legal legal uh, theories to indict or charge or prosecute Donald Trump on, my suspicion is he'll win those cases if the charges aren't dismissed ab initio. So again... I don't, okay. I don't share that sentiment. Okay. I don't think he's going to win. All right. I don't think, I think they're going Are you to willing to let it play no out? What. Well, for sure. Okay. You have to, right? I mean, we, what else What else do we do on the right? We let it play out. And when we don't win, then we just go, aw, shucks. And we go back to the drawing board. Uh, and try I, to I don't think else. anyone's saying, aw, shucks. I, I don't think anyone's saying, saying, aw, shucks. I think we're trying to run serious candidates to win a bigger majority in the House and maybe take back the Senate. I, I have to ask you an honest question, which uh, you can think about and maybe call me back on tomorrow because I'm, I'm going into commercial break. But... You know, if we are going to become a majority party in this country, and when you look at the policies of the left, and you look at our policies, it's a mystery to me as to why we aren't an overwhelming majority party in this country. It's a mystery to me in several respects. Some of it has to do with the candidates, of course, and some of it has to do with the media, of course. But when you say that it's time to start thinking about revolution— do you think that obtains and attains more people to your side and more voters? That's a serious question I want you to think about, because we still do live with politics here. All right. Thank you, brother. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? 
Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which may have led to the Biden presidency, Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power. And their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you have trusted the the veterans at Midas Gold Group, as I have, as Seb Gorka has, because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. So give give the Midas Gold Group a call today at 480 Three six zero three thousand. That's four eight zero three six zero three thousand. Or visit them online at midasgoldgroup.com. That's midasgoldgroup.com. Um, this is so interesting. Actually, it's, what do you got on your pin today? What's your political pin today, young David? Pretty basic. I've got a Dole Kemp at 96 pin. Dole Kemp in 96. My guy, Kemp. Yeah, that <laughs> my, let's make that clear. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's make that very clear. Uh, you want a little story? Sure, any kind of stories. From 1996, there was a lot of chatter about who would be Bob Dole's vice presidential nominee, and um, Dole. And it's been written up, so I'm not telling anything out of school. Dole uh, had a preliminary conversation with William Bennett, um, who was fresh off the Book of Virtues and all that stuff, had a um, had a preliminary conversation with Bill Bennett asking him if he would entertain or consider, you know, being asked to be Bob Dole's VP. Wow. And uh, Dr. Bennett said, no, nah, it's not my interest. I don't I don't really I'm, I'm, you don't want me. I'm trouble. And uh, Dole said, well, who should it be? Who should I ask? And Bennett said, you ought to ask Kemp. And Dole said, I'll never ask Kemp. (laughs) (laughs) That never doesn't mean always the same thing in politics. Never say never again. Yeah, never never say never. Never say never. I remember when Kemp was announced, everyone thought that was just the jolt of energy the Dole campaign needed. Uh, You know, the exuberance. And and, uh, Kemp should have run for president uh, and succeeded. Uh, He ran in 88 and didn't make it. He... uh, he should have been chosen as Reagan's vice president in 1980. A lot of people wanted that to happen. It didn't happen for him. He um, he just kind of missed that pedal a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But he would have been a fabulous, fabulously, uh, tremendously helpful leader of the Republican Party at that level. Um, he was he was he was just such a such a great great advocate. Go to C-SPAN. And watch some of his old speeches, uh, whether he's secretary of HUD or whether he's at a convention or whether he's in a debate. Watch those debates he did with George Bush or watch his debates on firing line. He was a um, he was a rare, rare person who was missed uh, to Morton Kondracki. I was at a, I was at uh, Kemp's funeral and Morton Kondracki uh, uh, must be mostly retired now. I haven't thought of him in a long time. He's kind of a big player in. In uh, at the New Republic for many years and on the McLaughlin group, he turned to me and said, um, we miss him too much now. We didn't know what we had when he was alive. And I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. I can tell you Jack Kemp stories for hours, uh, but I won't bore you. But 
That's a nice pin. I didn't see that. Dole Kemp, 96. Yeah, just yeah. little subtle. Yeah. Right there. You want to know something interesting? What's We've that? We've only got a little yeah. bit of time left yeah. in the segment. Yeah. In 1988, when it came down to Bush Dole, yeah. Gene Kirkpatrick endorsed Bob Dole. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In what year? 1988. In Bush Dole. It was Bush Dole in 88. Oh, For the nomination. Oh, oh I yeah, see what yeah. you're saying. I see, I see what you're saying. When all the other people had gotten out. By the time Kemp had gotten out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gene endorsed. Bob Dole. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see it. Yeah, Gene and H.W. didn't see foreign policy the same way. Gene always had a moral aspect to her foreign policy that Bush always derided as kind of that vision thing. Yeah, I can see it. I'm Seth Leapson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. This is really odd. Um, someone over at the Ron DeSantis campaign, uh, actually over at uh, one of his independent uh, committees, uh, released a trove of documents that are internal memoranda to Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, on what he needs to do at the debates on August 23rd. And the whole series of strategies is laid out um, for everyone to see. Uh, you want to hear them? This is It gives you an insight into the thinking at the DeSantis campaign. If you want, if you're, there's two things to to be said about this up front. One, if you want to uh, understand or get a sense of the kinds of things Brandon Weikert has been saying about the shenanigans that have uh, internally led to Ron DeSantis not doing better, uh, the junior varsity uh, staffing that seems to surround uh, and and suffuse that campaign, this would be an example of it releasing this kind of advice to the candidate in public. That would be one. Uh, The second would be some of the advice, the advice inherent uh, or that inheres in these uh, released documents. All right. So one of the memos urges uh, Ron DeSantis that there are four must-dos at the debate. One, attack Joe Biden in the media three to five times. Two, state DeSantis's positive vision two to three times. Three, Hammer Vivek Ramaswamy in a response. Four, defend Donald Trump in absentia in response to any Chris Christie attack. Now, um, you go down a little bit further and you get the thinking behind some of this. In fact, under each of these, some of the philosophy or the underlying reasons for that advice is that Ron DeSantis, when it comes to Vivek Ramaswamy, should take a quote-unquote sledgehammer to him by giving him a nickname, taking a page from Donald Trump's playbook, calling him Fake Vivek or Vivek the Fake. Um, I have to tell you, uh, I I don't know what they're paying these people, but they're overpaying them. I don't know what they're paying them. They're usually paid a lot, and you're getting overpaid if you think trying to be Donald Trump with nicknames is going to work. That has been tried and failed any number of times. Uh, I don't know if it works for Donald Trump. It seems to stick when he does it, but it hasn't worked for anyone trying to mock him, and it quite honestly looks really, really cheap. 
Uh, the memo says Mr. DeSantis should defend Trump when Chris Christie attacks him <clears throat> with a specific suggestion for an attack line accusing Mr. Christie, the former New Jersey governor, of appealing mainly to Democrats. Here's what he suggests Ron DeSantis say. Trump isn't here, so let's just leave him alone. He's too weak to defend himself here. We're all running against him. I don't think we want to join forces with someone on this stage who's auditioning for a show on MSNBC. Do you think that's a real good put down of Chris Christie? I don't even think most people would understand what it meant. I mean, it takes you a moment to kind of try and figure out what that attack against Chris Christie even means, I think. Um, (laughs) Okay, Uh, let's see. There's some other advice in here for Mr. DeSantis. Um, The suggestion in the debate perhaps memo for Mr. DeSantis to defend Mr. Trump went only to a point as a way to rebut Mr. Christie and to credit Mr. Trump for his accomplishments while noting it is time to move on to a new Republican standard bearer. The documents suggest saying that Mr. Trump's time has passed and that Mr. DeSantis should be seen as carrying the torch for the movement he inspired. Um, again, if this is what the best money you can buy for advice is getting you for advice, um, you're overpaying and you don't have the right staff. Some of the lengthiest documents in the Trove Center on Mr. Ramaswamy, Mr. Christie, and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Uh, Mr. Ramaswamy, who has been creeping close to Mr. DeSantis in some polling, is the only candidate about whom two separate documents described vulnerabilities that DeSantis could attack. One lays out Ramaswamy's past statements about abortion, immigration policy, and COVID masks among a long list of subjects. The other is a lengthy opposition opposition research document on his positions and past actions. Um, look, I um, I have been talking with a lot of people about the curiosity of DeSantis's inability to do better um, than he's been doing, and one of the things that uh, leaves DeSantis in a very tough spot is that you have to wonder what's left in his arsenal at this point. Uh, Because if there was anything, he'd have used it. The answer to that question is obviously his uh, rhetorical agility and skills at the debate, a lot of which is now on his shoulders to handle very well. But if anyone's reading the press accounts from the friendly as well as the unfriendly, from the liberal as well as the conservative about DeSantis, it's not that he's not strident enough. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's not that he's not tough enough. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think, what was the columnist's name who did this? Peggy Noonan put it really well, and we don't always like everything Peggy Noonan says, but sometimes she has a real chestnut, and I think she got it really, she got it right really strongly when she wrote a couple, about a month or two ago, she wrote that with a lot of politicians, you ask the question of, Do you like them? And do they like you? And with Ron DeSantis, you get the impression he just doesn't like you. If that is true, and I think there's something to that, that is what you keep hearing from his events, is he comes off haughty, he comes off impersonable, and he doesn't have what Trump has, though Donald Trump may not seem like a warm and fuzzy person. Donald Trump has a factor where he is loved, and no one loves 
Ron DeSantis. I mean, a lot of people hate Donald Trump, too, and a lot of people hate Ron DeSantis. But very few people, very few people say they love Ron DeSantis. There's just something missing there. And going a little bit too clever by half against your opponents and being strident doesn't seem to me to be the right thing to do. It seems to be to turn around the image people have of you, which is that you are unable to win a national election because you are unlikable. And you know what? That's the hardest thing in the world to overcome. But it's not going to be from these memos, and it's not going to be from a campaign staff that is releasing these internal memos, which, quite frankly, you know what? Make Ron DeSantis look small. They make him look small. And that's what you don't want from your staff either. I I take what Brandon has been saying about that camp over there. They're not sending him their best. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Yeah, you almost get the impression Al Hurts trying to catch up to the beat of the music there a little bit, huh? How do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy, inflation, stock market volatility, talk of a recession on the horizon, bank failures? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve, any of that? Why Refi has that. They have an investment in a portfolio. Well, you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% rate of return, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Why Refi is a dil- uh, is a due diligence approved firm, and they're also based here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road, 101. Meet the team. I have plenty of times. You won't get a sales pitch. No one will ask you to sign anything. They just like talking about what it is that they do and leave the selling to me. When you meet with the team at YReFi, though, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or call 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. I guess you never know how many um, iterations of something it takes before it's observed or appreciated or heard by, you know, the random listener generator. You know what the random listener generator is? It's the idea that not everyone is listening to everything all the time that comes off of this radio station or from this show. You know, some people tune in and out. Some people listen at one hour and not another. Some people, you know, are busy and have meetings certain days. So um, I got a, I got, I just got an email during the break. Um, I actually got three mentions from three different emails. I, when I got this third one, I said, okay, I got to mention this. Um complimenting that we used that song W-O-L-D by Harry Chapin in our bumper music a few moments ago. And it's funny, too, because you remarked on it. I guess you hadn't heard it here before in a long time. Yeah. Harry Chapin's W-O-L-D. This third email said, a favorite. Thanks for playing it. I'm a big fan of radio all the way back to Chicago youth of the Zenith countertop radio listening to W-L-S getting ready for Catholic school. By the way, Try Chicago group made at National Buckingham's. Hey, baby, they're playing our song. Um, Harry Chapin was a great storyteller musician, died too young in a terrible car accident, age 30, late 30s. Mm. I, I don't think he made it to 40. 
but had some huge hits. Uh, W-O-L-D, Everyone Knows Cats in the Cradle. Everyone knows that song, which I think is his least good song. And if I never <laughs> hear it again, it's too soon. I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a Better Place to Be is a haunting song. That is a deeply moving song, A Better Place to Be. And then his song Taxi. That's also a haunting. You know the the song Taxi? It's 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 a hell of a story. Hell of a singer, songwriter. Uh I think he used to just go on stage with himself and an upright bass player and a drummer. I think that was it. He and his guitar, an upright bass player and a drummer. A I think real so. trio. Yeah, just a trio. And uh really interesting musician. Bruce Springsteen said he always said, I play one song for me and one song for the other guy. The other guy being someone he's raising money for charity for. That was a beautiful sentiment, too. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.